In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Have you ever attended Debtor's Assembly? Sparky Abraham, our guest this week on Money Tales, has been helping people with debt problems for nearly a decade. He has frequent money conversations, sometimes in unconventional situations. For example, Sparky helps host debtors' assemblies, where strangers come together in relatively small groups because they have something in common that they usually haven't talked about with anyone else, being in debt. He tells us the debtor assembly structure allows the participants to build solidarity, share their experiences, and learn ways of addressing their debt. Sparky is the founder of Jubilee Legal, a consumer and debtor's rights legal practice based in Oxnard, California. He is also the legal strategist for the Debt Collective, the nation's first union of debtors. Sparky has helped hundreds of people with creditor harassment, foreclosure, student debt, credit reporting issues, and discriminatory lending. Here are three key money topics Sparky hits on in this conversation. First, what it's been like to clearly remember money trauma from his childhood. Second, how alone people can feel when they're trying to sort out their financial life. And third, the importance of having patience with your partner when making financial decisions together. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, on to our conversation with Sparky Abraham. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cammie Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Sandy, we opened up and started playing a new board game this week. The family did. Lots of games in your family. Which one did you play this time? We played Life, which is, I didn't realize, isn't called Life. It's called the Game of Life, but I didn't play it much when I was younger. Oh, that's the one you're like, you get a car, you drive through. Good memory, Sandy. So my last board game that I talked about on Money Tales was Monopoly. And that was really a great game to play with my kids and my husband. And it's just a great teaching tool and, and an opportunity to talk about money. What I liked about life is it's a skinny down Monopoly. Do you remember that? It's sort of simpler. It's shorter. You're not there for hours. I have a vague recollection. I feel like you had to choose a profession. You had to choose a profession. You went to college or not. And there was really some interesting decisions and opportunities and life events that hit you no matter what. But I found it shorter and it kept my kids were six and eight, kept their attention span much better. And we could have these really good conversations. Investing was simpler and that was fun. So my six-year-old really started to understand, oh, okay, why would you invest in something and not just to hold money? Some of the biggest value was for me, what I watched them around 
keeping their money organized, knowing what they have, paying attention when payday is. Really simple stuff, but it was really, it was great because they would sometimes blow past a payday, which you could do in one roll. And we started reminding them, oh, don't forget you have a payday. And then we thought, maybe we should let them learn. And they did when they forgot one. Oh, they were burning and angry and they were quick to remember going forward. Oh, that's great, Cammie. And I seem to recall when you were playing Monopoly, your youngest was hoarding cash. She was reticent to spend it. Did she exhibit different habits in this game? The game was easier to understand that if you invest, it wasn't as complicated. So she did. She did start to, um, my eldest started learning the concern of making sure you had enough cash flow. <laughs> she really, oh, I'm just going to invest in everything. And all of a sudden she's nearly out of cash. So that was, it was just a lot of fun, great learning. I really appreciate these games as a way to have money conversations in a really fun way. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Well, let's introduce our guest today. Welcome Sparky Abraham to the Money Tales podcast. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. By the way, the history of Monopoly Wikipedia page is one of my favorite Wikipedia pages. It's really interesting. I think the game started as like an educational tool to teach people the dangers of consolidating land ownership in a few private hands. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to look into this. Well, Sparky, would you provide an introduction for our listeners? And in doing so, would you share a couple of pivotal moments that took place in your life that really impacted who you are today? Yeah. I'm Sparky Abraham. I am an attorney in California. I started a law practice called Jubilee Legal. I help people with dealing with debt of all different kinds. I also work with an organization called the Debt Collective, which is the nation's first debtors union. I do legal strategy with the Debt Collective and a bunch of other fun things. And man, pivotal moments. I mean, one surely pivotal moment that I often try not to think about too much is in terms of the themes of the podcast, at the very least, is in high school, my family kind of like had a lot of money problems. And just right toward the end of high school, we lost our house, not directly to foreclosure, but kind of like a quick sale in order to avoid foreclosure. When I reflect on it, I think that I still have like a lot of my tendencies around money and the way that I feel about my financial situation go back there. I can still put myself back there and and feel uh, sort of the like last day throwing stuff in the truck anxiety of going through that. And another more recent pivotal moment, <laughs> which is not unrelated to that one, was last year, I left a job at a legal services organization. I mostly worked for legal services organizations, doing free legal services for my career. But I left a job and started my own practice. That has been really interesting and a little bit scary. And there are times when I remind myself of my dad while I'm doing that. And I go, oh, no. <laughs> mm. Those feelings start to resurface. Yeah. And trying to figure out how to transition from having a salary and helping everyone for free to how do I actually make a living doing the same thing? I still, as it turns out, help people for free. And I'm doing okay, but we'll see in six months. <laughs> Oh, so important. And those two pivotal moments are great examples of things we like to dive into. Could we start with your upbringing and tell us more about how money was handled in your home? How did you start learning about money when you were younger? 
both my parents are artists and mostly starving artists through most of their lives. We lived with a lot of support from my grandparents. We like lived in their garage for a while. We lived at the bottom of their property and sort of like a house that you get on a truck and then you put it together shaped like a barn. For a little while, when I was like adolescent, early teenager, my dad kind of had like a business success. Like he had an idea, he started sandblasting rocks, it kind of took off. And we like had not like money to, to buy a new house or something, but we had like toys at least, right? <laughs> like we had a new computer and stuff. And my parents didn't talk about money very much. They weren't used to having it. It was very much easy come, easy go. And then it went. And then it was kind of like a hard crash after that. And so I didn't really take a lot of good lessons necessarily growing up from my family's experience with money. I did sort of in order to escape everything that was going on, probably start working full time when I was like 15 and kind of learn the hard way how to handle my own money, including like some instances of paying a lot of overdraft fees and stuff like that. <laughs> and I like the game of life, but real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sparky, tell us how you were beginning to form ideas about your own future as a teenager who was working and bringing in money, but also seeing what was happening to your parents and experiencing that fear that you said of having to like throw everything in the truck and move out of the house. I mean, as a teenager, I was like a contrarian jerk. I mean, <laughs> you know, I was like, um, at one point, there was kind of this conscious decision that I was brought into about like, I had a little bit of money that one of my aunts had set aside for me to go to college. And it was like, okay, you know, do we want to save that for me to go to college? Or do we want to like try to use it to stay in the house a little bit longer? And we used it to stay in the house a little bit longer. And I kind of took that to be I didn't like I didn't know anything. And like, my parents didn't really go to college. And it's like, oh, you know, that's fine. I just won't go to college. And so I thought I was gonna like, keep working at the shack in the harbor where I was working in high school, like putting people on whale watching boats for the foreseeable future and like maybe go to city college for small business management or something like that. And I was doing that, I think, partially as a as a contrarian little protest. Like I grew up in Santa Barbara. Everyone around me, for the most part, I mean, it's a very divided place, right? It's like either you have a lot of money or you have like very little money. And so my high school, it's like all the people who are like, going to go to the fancy colleges and then all the people who aren't. And that often divides on long racial and ethnic lines as well. And I think I kind of self-consciously was like, no, like that's for those rich kids. Like that's not for me. So I really had no concept or inkling of ending up in this sort of situation that I'm in now. What actually ended up happening is I kind of got bored and like enrolled in city college on top of full-time work. And I was like, oh, actually school is really fun. You know, I hated high school, but I love college. And so that kind of took me off. Yeah. So how does the son of a starving artist or two starving artists, how do you decide to go into law? It feels very opposite of the brain, very analytical. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, lawyers, kids rebel and do a bunch of drugs and be artists and artist kids rebel and don't do any drugs and go to law school, I guess. I, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I sort of fell into it in that I kind of just went with a friend in order to take a practice LSAT without really intending to do anything about it. But I did well. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm a philosophy major. I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> so you, you literally fell into law. When did you start becoming focused on debt? Pretty fast. So I went to law school in 2011. So it was 
mid-foreclosure crisis, I think Occupy Wall Street started during my first semester at law school. And there was Occupy New Haven where I was as well. And you can basically do clinics at my law school in your second semester of your first year. And so after the first semester, I went and I, I thought I wanted to do immigration. So I went to go sign up for the immigration clinic and it was full and I didn't get in, but I got into the foreclosure clinic. And I feel like there are two ways to tell, I mean, there are a million ways to tell every story about yourself. So like the story that I tell myself in my head is like, I don't know, I didn't get into the immigration clinic, but I got into the foreclosure clinic. So like, that's what I did. Of course, there's surely some link there between my own Some calling. <laughs> yes. But once I got into it, you know, it was like, it's really interesting and it's really fun and it's really helpful. And there's an aspect of work, a legal work around debt. It's kind of mathy. It's often sort of constrained by these very old rules, but with a lot of room for creativity. And it was something that also spoke to my contrarianness a little bit. It's a little bit fighting the man. It was not a popular thing. It's probably more popular now among law students than it was when I was in law school. And it was a way to like really seriously help people who were going through a traumatic experience that I was very familiar with. Sparky, I'm curious, did you utilize debt as you were going through school? Oh, yeah. So I managed to do undergrad almost with no debt. I actually ended up, my dad got a Parent PLUS loan for like a summer program that I did that I had forgotten about, but ended up paying off for him after law school because they were about to start garnishing his disability benefits. But for law school, I, I came out with, I think, maybe like $150,000 of student debt. What did that feel like for you? Well, because I was working on debt, I felt like I could figure out what my rights and options were maybe better than other people. And so I didn't, I don't think I felt too stressed about it. I understood that I was going to do a fellowship at a legal services office making $46,000 a year after law school. And so my student loan payments were going to be little or nothing because I was going to get on income-based repayment, which I did. But looking back now, I think it has shaped some of the decisions that I've made at least. And I will say the student loan payment pause for sure allowed me to start my own practice. I would not have been able to do that comfortably if payments had been turned on this whole time. When you were in school, were you talking with your classmates about money and their financial situation? To some extent, yeah. And there were actually, there were some other students in my law school class who did this great survey project. It was called Class Action. That was just about socioeconomic status and class within Yale Law students. It had some like really shocking top line results. It was like 75% of people had at least one parent with an advanced degree. You ask like, are you lower, middle, or upper? And then you ask, how much did your family make? It's like, oh, those things don't quite match. Um, <laughs> I think that definitely not as much as I would if I were to go back now, because a lot of what I've found through my career, and especially through working with the Debt Collective, is like how valuable those conversations are and how alone people feel when they're trying to deal with their financial lives, and particularly around things like debt and including people who are in school and dealing with student debt. Man, we could have had a lot of fun <laughs> if we'd done some debtors assemblies or something back then, which is something that, you know I'm working on now. I'll be at Loyola Law School tomorrow talking to folks about their debt. So, so I think it's interesting that you have become an expert in debt from a legal perspective. You 
understand the benefits of having debt, allowing you to go to law school, for example, but then also you've had to navigate the burden of debt, not only yours, but your family's debt growing up. And so I'm wondering, Sparky, what is your orientation toward the idea of borrowing money today? Should people borrow and and what should they know when they are borrowing money? So Astor Taylor, one of the co-founders of the Debt Collective, has this great saying, which is, she says, we're not in debt because we live beyond our means. We're in debt because we're denied the means to live. And I think for the vast majority of people, that's true. So I don't really consider my legal education to be an advantage that I got from debt because I think that actually education is public good and it should be free and open to all. And I am not a fan of the system that we've decided on, not even that long ago, to finance higher education through individuals going into debt. I see it as a necessary step that people have to take at this point. Unfortunately, most people have to take in order to have a place to live, have transportation, get medical care, have an education there's really no choice. It's not something that can be avoided. And so what I orient myself toward and what I spend my time trying to do is help people understand A, that they're not alone, and B, that a lot of the moral framing and moral feelings we have around debt are misplaced, sometimes strategically misplaced by people who are trying to take advantage of our feelings around debt. I don't know if if you all have dealt with debt collectors before, but like this is their whole jam. They try to make you feel like a really terrible, irresponsible person so that you feel like you just have to pay them. And of course, they're not going to tell you how much they paid to be able to collect from you. And so really just, I try to keep my orientation a realistic, justice-oriented, practical approach to say, okay, why are we in this circumstance? What choices have we made as a society to put people there, not just individual choices? And then how should we operate? Should we operate like if we had to use our Bank of America credit card to pay for emergency dental work? Is that just the same as borrowing 10 bucks from a friend? Or is that a company is trying to extract as much money as they can legally from you? And maybe you should do as much as you can legally to get your own benefit. When you go to Loyola Law School tomorrow and you're talking to the law students, what are your top messages to them? I mean, the top, top message is always you're not alone. That debt and financial struggle is something people feel a lot of shame and embarrassment about, but it's really powerful to actually be able to share. And this is one of the things I love about your podcast too, is is actually to have these conversations in the open. And you know that kind of relates to the collective power and organizing idea behind the debt collective too. Some famous industrialist had the saying, it's like, if you owe the bank $100,000, the bank owns you. And if you owe the bank $100 million, you own the bank. I mean, together, collectively, we own the bank. The power is still ours. It's just individually that we are more powerless when it comes to our debt. So top line is always you're not alone. I think one of the things that I always like to hit on, especially for these kind of first sessions too, is to really dig into credit reports and credit scores in particular, because I think this is one of these places where the moral aspect, the moral underlying kind of background music really comes to the fore for people. And they consider, you know, it's like, oh, I got a 750, like I'm a good person. (laughs) Or like, oh no, I only have a 580. Like that's really embarrassing. That's really shameful. And just to kind of both hit on what technically is this, 
what role does it play in society? Why does it exist? It's not some publicly funded measure of how good a person you are. It's literally something lenders pay for to find out how much money they're going to make from you. And also talk about the evolution and the role in society and the racial disparities and the links to surveillance, <laughs> like to kind of just demystify and denaturalize, I think, these things that a lot of us take for granted and get a bunch of our moral selves wrapped up in in a way that I think is counterproductive. It's funny that you bring that up. It reminds me of a book by Gary Steingart, Super Sad True Love Story. Did you guys ever read that book? No, I no. my wife read it. I have seen it on our shelf, but I haven't read it. It's a really interesting book. One of the features of the society in which the book takes place in is whenever you walk by a billboard, your credit score automatically gets displayed to everybody who's walking or driving by. <laughs> so it kind of brings to life this idea that you're talking about the credit scores. What I think is really interesting related to all of this is what a poor job our society does in educating people about things like credit scores. When anyone can apply for a credit card, but they're not taught how to use a credit card at the same time. And it does, I think, set up room for peril. And the credit rating system is very obscure. And it's very odd. You get a better score the more credit you have access to, but the more you utilize your credit, the more your score goes down, especially if you don't pay off your credit when the statement comes due. I'm wondering, Sparky, based on your experience and your thoughts about this, which I think are very radical compared to other folks we've talked to who have been in the situation of having to deal with a bunch of debt, it's always been around, well, how do you get out of debt instead of how do you use the system to manage through it? But what would you change about our system? to make debt more equitable. I mean, I, I would make public goods publicly funded to start with. Yeah. <laughs> the vast majority of people who I, I mean, maybe basically everybody, I'm having trouble thinking of a single person who I have ever helped or talked with who's been like, I don't know, I just wanted to like buy a bunch of stuff. I wanted like a big screen TV and stuff. So I just went out and used my credit card. The vast, vast majority of people who are struggling with debt are struggling with debt because of circumstances in their life beyond their control. And so it's hard for me to imagine tweaks to our debt or credit system itself that could make things more equitable if you're still, you know, can't afford medical care, can't afford education, can't afford utilities. Like you have a childcare emergency, you have a medical problem, you have somebody who like one of your relatives needs to come live with you for a little while and, and then you fall behind and utilities. Like all of these things snowball. I think that debt is a useful lens and it's a good entry point into how to think about the broader society. But I don't think you can fix debt. I think you have to fix everything else. It's a symptom. Yes. So Sparky, you've jumped into the deep end and have become a business owner. Yes. How did you get there? How did you get comfortable with taking something that had more certainty to bringing on uncertainty and possibly debt? I kind of bounced around in different types of jobs trying to figure out what I liked. I worked in legal services and I really, really love working with clients. But it's sometimes difficult to operate within sort of the material, re material reality of legal services, which is like there are a lot of people who need much more help than you can give. And the extent to which you can help people and what you can help them with is often determined by grant funding. The funders will say, okay, you can use this grant to help this category of people with this kind of problem. You have like a cheat sheet 
of like 30 grants and you're like trying to figure, okay, which box can I put this person in in order to make sure we have funding to do the work? And if you don't have funding for it, you're not going to do it. And you know, I worked for the government, which was really fun and you could be really creative and kind of cutting edge at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but like I miss talking to people and working with people. So I think that what really drove me was I have finally kind of figured out what aspects of a job that I like and what kind of stuff I like to work on and discovered that there was no job that would actually check all those boxes, but that people are able to do what I'm trying to do. Like I'm not the first solo consumer attorney. There are a bunch of people out there who do this and who make a living and charge their clients little or nothing, but are able to survive and sometimes thrive because we've got all these great consumer protection statutes that are little used, but that require debt collectors to pay your attorney's fees if you win. And then the other thing is that I got an opportunity to work with a debt collector. So I, I was thinking about this. I was kind of putting my chips together for a little while. There was a little bit of a issue at the job that I had and some people left and I was feeling pretty unhappy. And then folks from the debt collective who I had long admired and, and worked with reached out and said, hey, do you want to work with us more officially? And I said, absolutely. And put in my notice the next day and figured I would build the plan as I flew it for the rest of the stuff. <laughs> Sparky, how often do you think about money today for yourself, your personal finances? Pretty often. I mean, I'm at kind of an inflection point right now, I feel like, which is I've had my own practice for a year and I'm now starting to get paid on some of the stuff that I started over the last year. And I'm kind of coming to the point where I can no longer be like, I'm not even at a year yet. Like, I've got a time to figure this stuff out. This stuff takes, I'm like, okay, now I've got to actually figure out what I'm doing, how much money I'm making, whether it's enough, what I can put it toward. So, pretty frequently. I'm always thinking about other people's money, but now I find myself thinking about my money more. Since you became an entrepreneur and started your own law firm? Yeah. My wife and I have been very conscious of our finances for a long time. You know, We do like a full reconciliation each month and we've got a very complicated spreadsheet that she built to figure out like where to put our extra $300 at the end of the month, whatever. Um, oh, that's great. Every month you're together reviewing your statements. Yeah. Yeah. We fight about the uh, formulas a little bit, you know, <laughs> but yeah. So it's always been a monthly conversation and it's been interesting to navigate that as well, particularly because I've got my little idiosyncrasies that probably have the roots and whatever from my childhood and like she's got her own stuff. And so you got to navigate that. But definitely it has gone from being an end of the month thing to think about to being like a Every day when I talk to somebody, I'm like, okay, you know, what are the costs and what is the potential revenue if I'm right about this case? And I'm curious, Sparky, as someone who is having money conversations all this time in your marriage on a regular basis and also with your clients, what best practices can you share? For me, it's just, you just got like kind of rip off the bandaid almost. <laughs> it's like power through, you know? And it, within the relationships, right? It, it's like, important to be very patient. So my wife is like super, super patient with me and she'll, you know, she's like, okay, you're kind of shutting down right now. Like, oh uh, yeah, okay. You're right. Like, let's, <laughs> let me take a minute. Let me try to bring myself back. It looks different in different situations. And I think that one of my favorite things to do that we do with the debt collective is, is we do debtors assemblies where we bring together strangers into relatively small groups of people who have something in common that they don't normally talk to other people about. And I think that can help a lot to have a little bit of structure. I'm not as familiar with this. So you have a debtor's collective. Can you bring that to life a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So 
we often will do it by like type of debt, but sometimes by kind of place and population. So for example, I think the last one I was at was for people who have private student debt, so not federal student debt. We'll have an event, bring a bunch of people together. The last one was on Zoom. I think we had 75 or 80 people who came. And we talk a little bit about what's private student debt, like how is it different, what rules apply. And then we'll break out into small groups, five to 10 people per group, hopefully with a facilitator, but sometimes not. It's a place for people to share their experiences with each other about dealing with this stuff, which you know can run the gamut. It's like, oh, they sued me and they got a judgment against me for it. Now my wages are being garnished or like, oh, I told them to screw off and they never came after me. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm free and clear or like I stopped paying a few months ago or I'm still paying because my grandma's a co-signer or whatever. But it's often things that people have never actually talked to anyone in their lives about. It is easier to share sometimes with a group of strangers within a structure. And it builds a lot of solidarity and people feel a lot better. And there was a woman who came to our second private debtors assembly who said at the first assembly that she came to was the first time she'd ever told anybody about her student debt. And she'd had the debt for decades. And after the first one, she felt empowered to share with her sister the fact that she had been dealing with the student debt. And her sister told her she also had student debt and had it for decades, and they never talked about it before. And so I guess that's kind of like ripping, but it's it's like, I mean, folks should come to a debtor's assembly, honestly, I guess is the advice. It's really sparky. It's powerful. I mean, what you're talking about is education, conversation, sharing, and through that. Normalizing, empathy. Oh, God. Learning from others. Um, yeah, it's, it sounds really priceless. And it works surprisingly well online and it works even better in person. That's kind of what we're going to do at the law school tomorrow. We've done it with Homeboy Industries in LA to talk to folks about carceral debt. Although one of the things that you find when you when you go and you try to say, okay, you know, I'm going to talk to people who are criminal justice involved, we're going to be talking about bail debt or whatever. It's like, ah, oh, no, you know, everybody's got every kind of debt. A lot of student debt conversations at Homeboy. Medical debt comes up at the law school. You never know. Sparky, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? I haven't done my end of the finances yet, so I'm going to do that tonight and talk to my wife about it. Oh, Sparky, what a great conversation. Would you share how can people find you? The Debt Collective is a very fun and valuable organization, and folks can find more information about that at debtcollective.org. Come to a debtor's assembly. It's a lot of fun. If you want to learn about my legal practice, you can go to my website, which is jubilee.legal. I'm also on Twitter, though, with decreasing frequency, at Sparky Abraham. Sparky, it's amazing what you're doing. I can only imagine the relief people get when they start working with you. Thank you for sharing so much with us on Money Tales. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening. And leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcast at See you next time. Thank you.